0: There have been a few biographies of Arthur Philip, the uh, first governor of the colony of New South Wales, and uh, most depict him as a humanitarian and egalitarian man of the uh, of the Enlightenment. There have been far fewer books on Bennelong. The Ongel man who was uh, kidnapped and then uh, established a relationship with Philip before travelling with him to England, and his story is usually depicted... ...as a tragedy and one of loss. Sitting with me in the studio is historian Kate Fuller, ...and she's written a dual biography of the two men... ...that um, challenges the, uh, the common perceptions... And uh, she's also challenges the way biographies are written. You are a troublemaker, Kate. (laughs) We last spoke to Kate back in 2021 about her book uh, The Warrior, The Voyager and The Artist, about the connection between artist Joshua Reynolds and uh, two of his most famous subjects, the the Cherokee, Ostenaco and Pacific Islander, Mai, who were both taken to England to negotiate with their colonisers. A similar path to the one that uh, Benelong would take with uh, with Philip. And uh, Kate's new book is called Benelong and Philip, A History Unravelled, and was published by Simon & Schuster. Welcome back to Late Night Live. Thank you. You have decided to write a dual biography, Why? Uh,
1: That is a good question. Um, I I think I was particularly interested in the biography of Ben Along, uh, but I did find that um, putting him in comparison to his kind of most famous colonial counterpart uh, was more profitable for me to be able to bring out I suppose more succinctly um, and neatly some of the similarities and differences to really be able to get at their personalities more quickly.
0: You are of course a myth buster and you have a very different assessment of Ben along to uh, most others who have written about him. What is different in your view?
1: Um, well, the thing that I mostly was interested in revising about Along, and there's also a, a revision about Philip as well. But the thing that I wanted to revise about Benelong was his persistent was the persistent idea that he represents loss in Australian history that he has that he ends up a tragic kind of victim of colonial manipulations, despite the recognition that he worked as a negotiator for a few years with Philip. There's a common idea that when he comes back from Britain, he just becomes a kind of a lost person between two worlds, rejected by both colonial and Eora society. But I really wanted to show through fresher research that's more recently been undertaken that he lives for nearly 17 years after he comes back from England. And um, I really wanted to emphasise that he <clears throat> walked away from the colony and went back to his Eora life, uh, at, by this time predominantly in Wallamodigal land, sort of around Ride Council area today. Um, and there's, there is... There is uh, evidence to show, but it's not the more traditional kind of official uh, officer's evidence, but there is evidence to show that he is deeply immersed and welcomed and beloved by his old community. And you can sort of see some of that in some of the kind of fleeting remarks by colonists that he. someone thought that he was a king. Um, he's sh- clearly involved in all the ritual Uh, battles that are going on around the harbour, and only someone respected and esteemed could have been part of those battles.
0: Well, we'll talk about his uh, last resting place later and its significance, but you make the point that his time in England interrupted his work to nurture Indigenous culture.
1: Yes, yes. And I think that, um, I mean, even going to Britain, um, we might think of it now as an interruption, But I think that his whole reason, his whole um, decision to engage for quite a few years with Philip around the Sydney Cove area and also to accept Philip's invitation to go to Britain was also part of that same agenda, to think that the ultimate goal was to preserve as much as he could Eora society. And he thought for those few years that negotiating and getting to know these newcomers would be the best route.
0: You also question the prevailing views of uh, Philip and his legacy. How did earlier biographers assess that? It was a bit hagiographic, wasn't it?
1: It's mostly hagiographic, I have to say. Um, I mean, he hasn't uh, attracted quite the level of response in by academic or public uh, historians as someone like James Cook, but he does share a lot of Cook's um, reputation as being a kind of founding father. He's often associated with the term enlightenment, and usually the words humanitarian, egalitarian, even democrat get attached to him. And even though I do think that he is a a man of enlightenment, my book was really about stressing a different kind of enlightenment, that the enlightenment in the 18th century for Philip really meant that he took a rational approach to governing, not necessarily that he was...
0: So he was not a proponent of democracy as uh, shown by his further career.
1: That's right. Yes, certainly democracy was, uh, I mean, it's it's not a, a popular democracy is not very much on the British 18th century landscape anyway. And Philip certainly was no adherent to it. When he goes back uh, from his governorship, he spends nearly twice the amount of years he spent in New South Wales, helping Britain fight the French Revolution which, you know, if we can just say the most basic thing, was a revolution for popular democracy. So, and there is some evidence to show that, you know, when he's talking to his superiors who are, you know, in government fighting that revolution, that he shares their view that this kind of um, popular version of democracy, he calls them spiders, he thinks it's not what's um, appropriate, and most of all he's worried about uh, a, a stronger France that might threaten the British Empire.
0: Now I've often described you as a troublemaker, Kate, and uh, not only do you write a dual biography, but you write it back the front.
1: I do write it back to front. This one only. Um, so it's called history—a history, uh, history unravelled because I do plot all the events in reverse order. So it's not quite the same as sort of imagining time literally moving backwards, like a, like I've read in some novels. But I did want to. I start with. Well, I, I start with the present day. Really, we go to their deaths. or their posthumous reputations, then their deaths, and then we unspool their lives back to their various types of beginnings. And that does a couple of things for me. Um, Primarily, it just matches the kind of arguments that I wanted to make about both men, which was to sort of reverse some of their reputations. Um, It also allows me to foreground in chapter one, uh, these two men, or introduce these two men in two two unexpected ways. First of all, here's Philip in the middle um, of the French Revolution back in Europe, helping to fight uh, this uh, the democratic forces of the French Revolution, which is not somewhere we usually expect to find Arthur Philip. Parallel to that is Benelong, deeply ensconced in his Eora society over in Wollumudigal land, um, happy and elder, esteemed and beloved. Again, something that we don't often think about Benelong being after his, uh, in his later life.
0: Let's start with the two men's deaths and the locations of their graves that I hinted at previously. Start with Benalong. What does his burial site tell you?
1: So Benalong is, we now think, um, well, we did always suspect, but we now actually kind of think that we've actually pinpointed the actual location in um, what was a suburban plot in Putney. Um, so just a little bit due west from where we're sitting right now. Um, and he there that was wallamadago land which is not where he was born he was born in Wongal land just across directly across the river from him but that by the end of his life that really had been t- quite taken over by colonists so in wallamadago land which is was was then james squire's uh, orchard um he's buried there with his last wife burong and one of his greatest proteges Nanbury. um and Uh, The idea, I I like kind of focusing on that moment that that, that we now know that there he is lying. Um, We know that he had, when he died, he'd been surrounded by a loving group of Indigenous, mixed Indigenous peoples, and he's lying there with two fellow uh, Eora people. Um, A kind of a a symbol of how he ended his life ensconced um, happily with people who wanted to be there with him.
0: And long after his death, many continued to visit the grave.
1: That's right, yes. There's there's a couple of poignant pieces of evidence that I don't think often get um, uh, noted in Histories of Benelong, which is always focuses on the 18th century. But by the early 19th century, we see some Eora people going to visit him and pay tribute, and another kind of sign of his esteem by the end of his life. <laughs>
0: What did uh, Bennelong's retirement look like? Well, I don't think the word retirement is accurate, is it?
1: Retire's not quite accurate because you know, it's not like they um, hold public jobs that then that, that then end. Um, but th- the last few years of his life, there is sketchier evidence uh, to say that he is like, out and about in the kind of revenge or uh, ritualised battles that are happening around the harbour. Uh, but until he until he was probably in his mid-40s, he dies around 50, but until about his mid-40s, there are scattered pieces of evidence that up and down the harbour, from Botany Bay up to um, uh, the kind of what we call Manly Cove now, he's involved in ritualised battles as a lead warrior. And as I've said before, that in itself is a sign of his re-immersion and esteem back with his people. There's
0: also evidence, is there not, that he became a healer?
1: Yes, I think that I think that I do kind of underscore that that's a speculation on my behalf, on my part but um uh a, a few people suggest that he um that, that he did have kind of healing uh, powers which in iora in Darug language is called garagian uh the, the first the first thing that i uh, thought about that this might be the case actually was from a tip off from bill Gamage, who is, i talked to a lot about uh this story when i was writing it and he wondered that back when bellalong is in his early 20s we do find evidence that he's in uh, territories which conventionally he wouldn't be found in. He's over in Gamare. um he's in um, a, a Kamegal land, he's down in um, Kame land. Places where normally, of course, you would need to be specially invited to be in. We do know that Garagian or healers are invited across territories more than other people. It may explain why he's there.
0: Well, his abilities as a healer were... Well, faced enormous challenges given that the family was des- decimated by illness and, of course, more and more land had been claimed by the colonists.
1: That's right, yes. Um, I mean, uh, no healer could face the destruction of what happened in 1789 when uh, Benelong is only in his early 20s, which is when the massive smallpox epidemic rips through this whole harbour.
0: I understand from you that he went on a trip to Norfolk Island...
1: That's right. Yes, that's when he comes back from England. He uh, he, he does, uh, I mean, he, he must know that the colonists are going back and forth to this island um, through the early 90s. Uh, he makes a request to go visit uh, Norfolk Island um, in 1796. Uh, possibly that is... I mean, I kind of speculate in the book that it's a, it's a bit of a, um, a time out for him, that he, that he can, can use the time to just uh, regroup a bit, because returning uh, in that first year, 1795, 96, had been uh, very tumultuous for him to try and refit back into society.
0: Ellen L. and my guest is Kate Fuller. Kate, I hadn't realised that he had ongoing relationships with the next four governors.
1: That's right. He does know them all. Uh, all of them. All of these next governors uh, maintained Philip's original policy of keeping the door open in Government House to Benelong because Philip had always wanted Benelong to be a potential negotiator for maybe a serious legal settlement. But uh, after John Hunter, who's the next formal governor. Uh, um, Billalong takes up that invitation increasingly less frequently um, and uh, by Macquarie's era, he's really not interested anymore in negotiating with any of them.
0: Well, as you point out, he eventually disengages when he realises that uh, there would be no more negotiations and uh, territory would just be taken.
1: That's right. So I think that he is really stepping away from what he sees as kind of the havoc around the Sydney Cove area and now increasingly spreading after Phillips uh, uh, leaving. Um, which is not to say that he gives up on his sort of grander mission to protect Eora society by all means. So the, one of the things I wanted to show was that his political strategy changes over time. That when he's a young man in his 20s and up to maybe 30 when he goes to England, um, he, he's I think, decided that, you know, mediating, negotiating, getting to know the newcomers might be the best way, the the best route to protection. At some point, he thinks actually maybe uh, inward looking to Indigenous concerns only might be the best way of preserving.
0: Kate, uh, the listener may be surprised to know that there have been calls for Philip's body to be moved to Sydney, even from a regular guest on our program, human rights lawyer Jeffrey Robertson. But do you think that would be a mistake?
1: Um, well, I don't know if it's a mistake or not. I just don't think it's going to happen because um, it'll go against um, Christian ideas about disinterring his body. But one of my points in the book is that it doesn't need to happen. Um, for some, Certainly for someone like Arthur Phillip, the idea that he would end his days in the uh, penal outpost of New South Wales would have been quite horrifying to him. He actually resides in uh, a small... Uh, parish uh, churchyard in Bathampton, in the heart of his beloved British Empire. I'm sure that's where he most wanted to be.
0: Well, that's where he spent his last years after retiring from the Navy.
1: That's right. Yes, yes.
0: Tell me about the Brazil Diamond.
1: The Brazil diamond. Um, so we we know about the Brazil diamond because he notes it in his will. Uh, that, that's one of the wonderful bits of evidence about Philip's kind of um, immediate posthumous life, that he leaves a quite detailed will. I mean, it tells us lots of things. It tells us about the kind of wealth that a colonial gov- governor can accumulate in one's lifetime. Um, but he leaves the Brazil diamond to, um, to some family friends um, and he acquired it, we think, from his time before New South Wales when he was uh, working or seconded to the Portuguese Navy in the Brazilian colony,
0: where is it these days?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I'm afraid. Yes, I don't. I don't know if that is actually mysterious, but I didn't actually keep on tracking it.
0: <laughs> okay. Now, was the post to um, the colony of New South Wales as posh as we might? Like to imagine?
1: No, I think that would have been quite a difficult post. I'm sure it was seen by everybody, including Philip and the government, as a hardship post. Um, but Philip, I kind of argue, was chosen as the ideal person for it, uh, partly because he's uh, he, he's a naval commander by then. He's got a, a good, a decent naval reputation, but it's also because, uh, rare amongst uh, naval captains, he'd also had some experience being a farm manager and kind of being a commander of forces and actually knowing how to think about land cultivation would have been the ideal combination.
0: Okay, time to return to the paradox of his reputation. One of the claims about Philip uh, was that he was uh, a humanitarian opposed to slavery? But do you believe that he was opposed on practical rather than moral grounds?
1: That's right. He he sees slavery enacted in the Brazilian colony. He spends you know four or five years uh, watching at uh, various different visits um, observing the uh, the Brazilian colony, which teaches him a lot about how colonies could and could not go. And he famously said in 1786 that uh, when he accepts the post to New South Wales, that New South Wales will not have slaves. And that's been taken up um, in various ways. But I think it's a legacy of him seeing how it planned out in Brazil. And as I mentioned before, his Enlightenment characteristics is mostly, most of all, being a rational man. And he actually saw that slavery was probably irrational. And it's not clear at all that he's opposing it for what today we might call moral grounds.
0: Now, I'd like you to turn from being a biographer to being a marriage guidance (coughs) counsellor. I want you to explore their relationships with women. What did you find out about Arthur's two wives?
1: So Arthur Phillip has two very interesting and slightly odd marriages. His first marriage is when he's a very young man, well before New South Wales, to a woman called Charlotte. And uh, and uh, uh, when I delved into that, uh, a few th- a few odd things stand out. One is that Charlotte is significantly older than Arthur Phillip. Um, she brings money into the marriage, uh, which in the 18th century would conventionally instantly go to the husband. But she gets Philip to sign what might be called a you know today a prenup. <laughs> a prenup, yeah. So he uh, he already agrees that if, if anything ever happens to this marriage, it's all it's always, always going to stay with Charlotte, and even. More rare, um, she also after six years gets a ju- judicial uh, settlement, which now, basically th- this ends. This is the closest
0: it. thing to a divorce.
1: The closest thing to a divorce. Explain not, how it operates. A divorce in the 18th century, an actual divorce would would require an act of parliament. So very few people, only aristocrats, would be able to manage that. Um, so this is not quite the same as a divorce because they're not allowed to remarry. Um, but it does mean that they are separated, and Charlotte gets all her money back for um for charlotte not being able to remarry is possibly no problem because i discovered that all the way through he, her marriage to philip and through her previous marriage she'd lived with a woman called anna maria kane and she dies with anna maria kane and their tombstone they share a tombstone which describes anna as um, her companion. So, are I was, you
0: suggesting it was more than
1: that? I am just suggesting that Philip got himself involved in a rather unusual marriage by many different accounts. And um, unfortunately, I mean, I was there, there was a couple of weeks when I was writing this book and I was thinking, I'm going to dump this whole topic and write just write a book about that those women, <laughs> uh, which would have been fantastic. But. Um, but uh, it, it, it remains just as a few pages in the, in the book as it stands as a way into Philip's rather standoffish view about women altogether. Um, I just think that he, uh, I mean, he comes from a society which has reasonably strong gender segregations in many ways and he really takes it quite to its limits. In, so no
0: kids for Arthur because, no, well, it. how could there be when he's married to women yep. past childbearing age? That's it, yes. Okay, what about uh, Bennelong's relationship with women?
1: So Bennelong um, is most probably known to ha- be married to Barangaroo because we have um, the, the legacy of her name around this around Sydney Town today. Um, but we know that he mar- he had at least four wives. A lot of Eora uh, men in the 18th century had two wives at the same time. His first wife, who um, is not remembered by name in the public records anyway, died in that smallpox epidemic. Um, his second wife was Barangaroo, kind of famously um, passionate, quite dramatic uh, relationship, a very fond one, but also a very, as I said, passionate one um, with quite a lot of drama involved in it. Uh, while he's also married to Barangaroo, he's also married to to a Gweagal woman uh, called Kurabarabula. But that's clearly a secondary marriage. It's not going to kind of threaten the marriage with Barangaroo. Uh, It's really kind of a political marriage of convenience. When both of those, uh, Barangaroo dies and Kurabarabula leaves Benalong, his final wife, we think, is Burong.
0: Now, Benelong had one child who uh, was brought up in a residential school and spoke English and sadly died 10 years after his parents.
1: That's right. Uh, he's called Digi Digi. Uh, he was the child of Benelong and Burong. Benelong did actually have at least, we know, um, a young daughter with Barangaroo, but she died as an infant. But Digi Digi survives his parents' Um, And so he's an orphan by about the age of 12-ish and is one of the first intakes in Macquarie's native school at Parramatta. Um, He also survives that, uh, but unfortunately dies at about the age of 21, 22. And he's just very, again, a a fleeting name in the records. But even the idea that he was invited by Macquarie to be part of that school and that people uh, looked out for him, is, I think, indirectly another sign of Ben Long's esteem.
0: Okay, do you make any assessment of how the two men saw each other? That is an interesting question.
1: Um, what, uh, well, I certainly don't think that they were enemies or there was no re- real hostility. I think they both recognised that they both had diplomatic kind of political jobs to do and they saw each other as counterparts in some ways. Um, but I, I was at some pains to to not call them particularly friends. I think they're often called friends and 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 maybe in some ways they were. But I do think that in histories the idea that they were friends does manage to kind of defang their stories a bit. It makes it makes it look like Philip just invited Benallong over to Britain when as, in fact he kidnapped him. As, yeah, well originally it, began, it begins with kidnapping. Um, but even though it becomes a bit more peaceful, uh, doesn't invite, ben, uh, Philip doesn't invite Philip doesn't invite Benelong over to London just because they're mates he invites him over there for political reasons. And again, Benelong only accepts them for political reasons, not just because he's a curious chap.
0: Can you give me some examples of Benelong's uh, diplomatic skills?
1: So when he is in a kind of detente or um, a kind of a, a, a peaceful state with Philip, this is after after he'd been kidnapped, but then also after, I argue, Bennelong orchestrates his kind of payback spearing, so the slate's wiped clean and so the two men can start their relationship properly. Uh, Benelong is quite instrumental in diffusing quite a, a, a few um, potentially volatile situations. There's an, there's an example of um, his friend Baladeri from Barramatta um, who uh, threatens some convicts uh, to such an extent that Philip wants to put a bounty on his head and Benelong is the one that to talks Philip down from that, um, not just to save his friend Baladeri's life but because he sees that the colonists ramp up violence and in response, Eora resist. And so he knows that every kind of single conflagration turns into bigger conflagrations. And so they both eventually realise that they're both working to diffuse these kind of situations.
0: What did you take from Ben Long's trip to England, Uh, Kate? How have people interpreted... uh, Well, people have interpreted he was changed by it, was he?
1: Um, changed. I, I think that possibly he, uh, what he saw, I mean, I, th- I think the British people in the 18th century thought that he would be bedazzled by London sights. Um, I don't think culture he was. Culture shock. Yes. Culture shock, impressed, um, overawed. And, and want to come back and tell his fellow Eora people that these are the, these, this is the empire to make friends with. Instead, I think the opposite happened. I don't think Ben Long was over-impressed at all. I think he, he noted that there was actually decreasing interest in him and where he came from in the Britain of 1793-94. Remember, this is a Britain now ensconced in a fight against the French Revolution. Um, I think he comes back really after another year or two, deciding that his lessons that he's learnt in Britain and what he sees in the colony after Philip's gone is um, a Britain that is no longer really worth engaging with. And that's why he then turns to having a strategy about just being about the aura.
0: Well, that leads us to a very important question and a subject you discuss in the book. Uh, and it feels, I must say, very relevant at the moment yes. is the hope that Benelong would sign a treaty while in England. Uh, Philip believed that uh, it would happen. Why didn't
1: I think that Philip believed it would happen. That's not a very popular view amongst historians uh, because there's no sort of straight-out evidence to say Philip saying, I hope that a treaty happens. But Philip is a man of the 18th century. He knows that the British have orchestrated a treaty with Indigenous peoples in every single place they've been to for the prior uh, 200 years. So there's no reason to th- for so Philip to think it's So they did adhere to, to
0: the notion of international law Absolutely. of the time?
1: Absolutely. They're adhering to... Britain's understanding of international law. They're also generally pushed to do so before they get to Australia in 1788, because there are other European empires pushing them to, uh, you know, find allies before the other ones do. Uh, so I believe that Philip. Uh, mission and determination to develop a relationship with Ben Long is partly because he thinks that every known past treaty has always had to have a mediator who is going to be the person to lead, uh, lead the other group at uh, the other side into treaty signing.
0: So it was weird in, at the time that it didn't happen and uh, here we are going to the ballot box in the shadow of it not happening.
1: I think that's exactly how I would phrase it, yes. And, of course, we're not going to the ballot box on Saturday to uh, really talk about treaty, uh, but we are going to the ballot box to talk about possibly the first steps that absolutely have to be on the table before we can even start thinking about such things. And to have constitutional recognition, as you've said, is uh is, it, it, this is a decision made in the shadow of everything that happened in those first five years.
0: Kate, it's, do we know whether Ben Long thought he would sign a treaty? Uh,
1: I do have some Indigenous friends who think that's possibly what he uh, imagined, or well, that he imagined at least that he would be part of some sort of formal settlement. Um, maybe he did. I, I, I think that the, only, the, the evidence shows that he at least went to keep on furthering his fact-finding mission about these other people. So that's, I think, as far as we know. Uh, It was certainly more than just a curiosity-led kind of venture.
0: Thank you for your fact-finding mission, Kate Fulliger, author of Benelong and Philip, A History Unravelled, published by Simon & Schuster. Kate is Professor of History at the Institution for Humanities and Social Sciences at the Australian Catholic University, and she's also co-editor of the journal History Australia.
1: Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.